Well, could I have any uh, children here, uh, kindergarten or fifth grade, join me up here on the platform. Join me up here on the platform. Come on up. You know, any kids, if you're like even third, fourth, fifth grade, just have a seat here. Come on up. Any kids? Is it weird having all those people staring at you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have nightmares all the time. I have dreams where, like, I'm up here and then I don't remember what I was going to say. Yeah, it's bad. All right. Well, listen, guys, over here. Hey, I got a Bible verse for you guys. I don't know if if you ever heard this. Let me just read it to you. It goes like this Uh, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. So pride comes before the fall. Do you guys know what pride is? What's pride? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. When you think you did it, when you think it's all you, pride is when you think you're the greatest one, you think you're the best, you think other people aren't so good. Uh, uh, do you guys ever heard this phrase, having a swelled head? You guys ever heard, ever heard your parents talk about that? You know, that means like someone who thinks they're great, and it's like their head is getting bigger and bigger because they think they're, they're better and better and... Uh, it's kind of like this. Like, imagine this balloon is your head, right? Say, so is that about your head? That's right. Okay. And then, I'll put a little face on it. Okay. So that's you, right? Now, what, what are some of the things in school that maybe you might become proud about, that you might think you're better than others? Yeah. Like at math, you know, you take the test and, and you do really well on the test and you start to think, hmm, I must be smart. That is, those other kids are stupid. Huh, you know, I, I guess I'm smarter than those kids. And guess what happens? That's right. What, what, what's something else you might be proud about? Yeah. You finish your lunch first. Yeah, attaboy. I can see you've been raised in the Baptist church, son. All right. Oh, is there something else that... that you... Whoa! <laughs> I know. Can you believe it? Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yes, here's the uh, shrapnel from your cranium. Okay. Yeah, pride comes before the Paul. Pride, pride comes before the pop. If you think you're better and better, be careful. Because just when you think you're the greatest and it can't get any better, that's when you're going to fall right on your face. And the bigger they are, the harder they fall. God wants us instead to be humble. And, you know, when, when you do something really good in school, when you really succeed, when you do something you're really proud of, you have a choice. Who are you going to praise? Will you praise God or will you praise yourself? Will you say, I'm great, or will you say, wow, God, thank you for helping me get an A on that math test or whatever it is. Whenever you do well in life, it's a chance to praise God for what God has done. So you guys bow your heads with me and let's just say a word of prayer then I'll let you run off. Dear God, I do thank you for these children and I pray that they might 
see that you are great, that you are wonderful. May this be a generation of children raised up who are in awe of you. Lord, help us to give thanks to you and praise to you whenever anything good comes in our lives and recognize it's all about you and it's all from you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, here we go. Your parents and Sunday school teachers can thank me later. Here's some candy. Candy. One, just 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 one. Okay, now you can go to Children's Church. There you go. Wow. That's like in those, like, uh, you know, National Geographic things where the guy around the sharks holds out the, the mackerels. Did you get one? Oh, here you go. All right, with the rest of you, open your Bibles to Isaiah 39. You can go to Children's Church now. That's good, yes. Isaiah chapter 39. I think I have all my fingers. That's good. Um, Isaiah chapter 39. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 713. Kindergarten to second graders can go to Children's Church. and Isaiah chapter 39 on page 713. And again, I just encourage you to uh, bring your own Bibles to church. I mentioned this last Sunday. It's my new little campaign for the fall. I really want you to bring your own Bibles. Uh, and, and it's just it's such a helpful thing to be able to be used to a one Bible, to read your own Bible, to be able to mark in your Bible. And, and when you go home and you set your Bible down on the table, you're going to be more likely to pick it up again and look at it and review whatever it was you studied as opposed to just picking one up out of the pew rack. So uh, I just encourage you, bring, bring your own Bible to church. It's just something I want to try to move us toward this fall. Uh, Isaiah chapter 39 is what we're studying today. So we continue our study of the book of Isaiah. It says in Isaiah chapter 39, verse 1, At that time... Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Now, uh, for those of you who maybe are uh, first time here this Sunday, we'd like to welcome you. Or if you weren't here in church last Sunday, uh, you probably picked up from this opening verse that this chapter is part two of a story. Part one was last Sunday, and we studied uh, King Hezekiah recovering from an illness. King Hezekiah had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and he prayed to God. This is what we studied last Sunday. God miraculously healed him and even gave him a miraculous sign to confirm that he was going to heal him. So that was what happened in this story last Sunday. That's just the background. So here's part two. Here's what comes as a consequence of King Hezekiah's miraculous healing. Meredek Baladan. You know, those Babylonians really knew how to name their kids, huh? Uh, Meredek Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Apparently this was a big event. It, it, people heard about it all over uh, the ancient world and it, it, news spread. Uh, if you could just put your uh, Bible down and take out your sermon notes for a minute. Let me just show you where Babylon is to get a sense of how far this news had spread and who Meredek Baladan was. If you take out your sermon notes and look on the second page, you'll see a map. You have to hold it this way. There's the Middle East. And can you see Assyria up here at the top center? Uh, that would be uh, modern-day northern Iraq. And then if you look south, on, between the Tigris-Euphrates River, there's the land of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And there's Babylon. And that would be modern-day sort of uh, southern Iraq. 
And that's where the Babylonians were. Now the Babylonians at this period were uh, oppressed and under the power of the Assyrians in the north. If you look back on the front page, you'll see a timeline here. And uh, this took place in Hezekiah's lifetime. You see the kings at the top. There's Hezekiah on the right. And then the Assyrians uh, were in the center line. Sennacherib was the king at this time. And then if you look at the bottom, you'll see the Babylonian kings. You notice there's not a lot because the Babylonians weren't a sovereign people at this time. They were underneath the thumb of the uh, Assyrians most of the time. But every once in a while, this, the Assyrians would be a little weak. And this character, Merodach Baladan, he was really a thorn in the side of the Assyrians. He would come to Babylon and he would proclaim himself king and he'd reign there for a while. Then the Babylonians would get sick of him, or the Assyrians, and they'd come down and they'd kick him out. And he fled to the, the marshes. And then he'd come back out of the marshes and he'd come uh, assert himself as king again. So he was constantly taking the throne and being kicked out by the Assyrians. He's a real troublemaker in the Assyrian Empire. Well, this guy way over in Babylon hears about Hezekiah's miraculous recovery from his illness. And so he sends letters and a gift. Now I suspect that these letters and this gift was not just a uh, Hallmark card in a little flower basket. I mean, this isn't just, oh, I'm glad you got better. Hmm. I, I, probably what's going on here is Meredith Baladan is using this as an opportunity to forge a political alliance. He's sort of feeling out whether or not Hezekiah will uh, join him in an alliance against the Assyrians, because he's the, the uh, consummate troublemaker. He's always trying to stir up trouble against Assyria. And hey, here's Hezekiah. Maybe Hezekiah will join him. So he sends these envoys to Hezekiah. And notice how Hezekiah responds, verse 2. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly. Now in Hebrew it literally says, Hezekiah rejoiced over them. He rejoiced over them. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses. The silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. So here come these envoys from Babylon. Hezekiah rejoices over them. Oh, you're here to see a little old me? You've come all the way from where? From Babylon? You've heard about me in Babylon. Oh, oh, really? Well, sure, let me show you around my kingdom. And so he starts showing them around and he shows them all his treasures. And well, let, let me just show you what's in this room. It's just a... It's a little collection of uh, gold and silver goblets I have. And, you know, he opens the door and, oh, you know, you see this amazing collection. Oh, it's nothing. Just a few trinkets I've picked up over the years. Oh, let me show you the next room. And he's taking them all over his empire and, and showing them how great he is and how magnificent his uh, treasuries and his armories are. And apparently he's kind of biting on the hook. He wants the Babylonians, apparently, to think that he's a worthy ally against the Assyrians. So there's some kind of... Uh, diplomatic gamemanship taking place here. All well and good. And then in verse 3, Isaiah the prophet comes. You know, the prophets, they just always show up at the most inconvenient times, don't they? That's the thing about prophets. They don't, they don't play by the rules. They don't fit in the system. They go when God says go. And that's usually not when it's convenient for us. And they come and suddenly, you know, knock at the door. Yes, who is it? Oh, uh, Isaiah. No, come in. Come in, Isaiah. Uh, you know, I, I'm kind of busy with these envoys. Well, I j just need a word with you, Hezekiah. And he says, what did those men say? Where did they come from? From a distant land. They heard about me all the way over in Babylon. From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. 
The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. At least he's honest. And then comes the judgment. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who, were born, who will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah receives an ironic judgment. The irony is that just as he has invited the Babylonians in to see all of his treasures, so ironically someday those same Babylonians will come and take off with all his treasures and conquer Jerusalem. And just as he's brought in the, the Babylonians to show his greatness and talk about his health and his recovery from illness, so in the same way, uh, ironically, the Babylonians are going to come and take his offspring away and put them in prison and make them eunuchs and just make them slaves in the house of Babylon uh, way over there in the, uh, in the east. It's just an ironic judgment that would happen that way. And as a matter of fact, that's what actually happened. In 586 B.C., a guy by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon conquered the Assyrians, conquered their country, and kept on conquering, came all the way over from the Fertile Crescent down into Palestine, and he wiped out Jerusalem, and he took off with every last bit of treasure they had. I mean, he picked that, that place clean. He picked it cleaner than a you know, turkey at a Baptist potluck. He took every, every last bit of bronze and silver and gold. He even went into the temple and dismantled the bronze pillars in front of the temple so that he could have every last bit of treasure. So this prophecy really was fulfilled about 120 years after Isaiah spoke it. And I think the fulfillment speaks of the authenticity of the prophecy. Because at the time, you never would have guessed, the time of this prophecy, you never would have guessed it was the Babylonians who would have done this. If you were just guessing, you would have said the Assyrians would do it. Because at the time, the Babylonians were just, you know, this little rebel group down in the south. Who would have thought they would someday overthrow the Assyrians and then come and take over Jerusalem? I mean, it was just unthinkable that this would happen. So this just speaks, I think, to the authenticity of the prophecy that Isaiah says the Babylonians are going to come and do this. And then Hezekiah responds in verse 8 with this kind of enigmatic uh, statement, verse 8. He says, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Now, as I was reading commentators, they, they really disagree over whether or not this is a positive or negative statement about Hezekiah. Some say, no, it's a positive statement. He's saying, God's word is good and I'm thankful for the mercy he's showing me in my lifetime. Others say, no, no, this is a negative reflection on Hezekiah. It shows that he has a self-serving attitude. Well, you know, as long as this doesn't come in my lifetime, what do I care? And, and it's tough to tell whether or not it's a positive or negative reflection on him. I, I tend to lean toward the negative, but it, it's really an interpretive kind of toss-up to know exactly what was taking place. But that's really a minor issue. There is a major interpretive issue that I think we have to wrestle with in order to really understand this passage. I think there's a, an interpretive question that just screams out after you read chapter 39 that has to be answered. It's like the key. And if we can get this key, it'll unlock the whole meaning of the text and the application of the text for us. So here's what I think the question is. Why was King Hezekiah 
judged. That's what I don't think... Maybe it seems crystal clear to you, but when I was studying this, I was like, I mean, what exactly did he do wrong? Apparently he did something wrong, because Isaiah comes and brings this big judgment. But, you know, what was it? What did he do that was so wrong? Was it, you know, showing hospitality to foreigners? Like, you know, sorry, I'm sorry I showed hospitality to people. Was it that he invited people into his place? Was it that he showed him his treasures? I mean, was there some treasure that they weren't supposed to see and he somehow sinned by showing them a specific treasure? You know, like, what? what's the big deal? I mean, why does God come down so hard on him here? What is it that he did? And here's what I think the answer is. Let me tell you what I think the, what he did wrong, and then let me show you why I think that, so it's not just me pulling things out of the air. But uh, I think that Hezekiah's sin was a sin of the heart. I think it was pride. Hezekiah was successful. He was rich. He was powerful. Now he was famous. People were coming from all over the, uh, the known world to, to view him. You really recovered? Tell us the story of your miraculous recovery. And as he becomes famous and prosperous, he starts to do what we so easily do. He got a swelled head and he thinks, huh, I must be something. Look at me. I must be some kind of king. I mean, God, he healed me miraculously. He doesn't do that for everybody. I must be important. There must be something about me that God really wants to protect and, and to preserve. And, and so he becomes in, inflated in his own ego, I think. And as a result, when these envoys come from Babylon, he's, he's flattered. Oh, you, you want to talk to me? You want to see my... Well, let me show you all of my treasures. That's the emphasis in verse 2. The totality. That, that's, I, I think, the main thing that comes out of verse 2 is he showed them everything. Let me show you this and let me show you this. And he got caught up in himself. Now, I think that's the, the crime. And the reason is because there's a parallel account of this event in another part of the Old Testament. And it gives a little more insight into the motivation behind Hezekiah's actions. So I want to read that with you. Put a bookmark here in Isaiah 39. Um, take your sermon notes and stick them in there. And turn back into the Old Testament to Second Chronicles 32. Try to find that, huh? Second Chronicles 32. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 455. Second Chronicles 32 on page 455. And Second Chronicles 2, uh, 32, we're going to look at verse 24. It gives us the uh, Reader's Digest version of Hezekiah's illness and recovery. And then it goes on from there. Look at Second Chronicles 32, verse 24. It says, In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord who answered him and gave him a miraculous sign. So there's the one verse summary of Isaiah chapter 38. And then he goes on, But Hezekiah's heart was proud, and he did not respond to the kindness shown on him and on Judah. Or rather, he did not show, respond to the kindness shown on him. Therefore, the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah repented of the pride of his heart, as did the people of Jerusalem. Therefore, the Lord's wrath did not come upon them during the days of Hezekiah. So here we have the same story, but from a slightly different angle. We find out in this story, which we don't find out in the Isaiah account, that there was some kind of corporate repentance that took place in Jerusalem. So most likely, Isaiah's account is a little more condensed. 
He doesn't give us all the details. And the biblical writers often do that. They don't give us every single detail. And then you read another account and they give you other different details so that you sort of get a full picture by reading it together. And, And I think what happened here is he became arrogant. You know, hey, God healed me. I must be special. Look at my wealth. Look at my power. And so he became arrogant and prideful. And then if you look at verses 27 and following... Uh, the writer of Chronicles wants to tell us why he became proud. I mean, why did he become so proud? Well, let me tell you why. Verse 27. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. And he made treasures for his silver. Uh, He made treasuries for his silver and gold, for his precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuables. He also made buildings to store the harvest of grain, new wine, and oil. And he made stalls for various kinds of cattle and pens for the flocks. He built villages and acquired great number of flocks and herds, for God had given him very great riches. It was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David. He succeeded in everything he undertook. This guy had the Midas touch. He was the golden boy. Everything he did succeeded. He was rich. He was powerful. He undertook this. It went well. He undertook that. It went well. I mean, the guy couldn't do any wrong. And in the midst of that, I think that's how he became arrogant. He forgot that it was God who was doing it, and he began to think that he was the one who was doing it. Hezekiah succumbed, I believe, to the sin of pride, and that's why he's judged here in chapter 39. Beware of success. Beware of prosperity. Beware of wealth. And beware of fame. These things are major pitfalls in the Christian life. They're not evil in and of themselves. Having money is not sinful. It's not as if the more money you have, the more sinful you are, and the less money you have, the more righteous you are. Money is not a a moral issue. The moral issue is our hearts. It's what we do with prosperity. It's what we do with success and fame. And whenever we begin to do well in life, and you know, it doesn't take much. It can be like that little kid said, I finished my lunch before the other kids. You know, it's, it's funny, the smallest little things that we will latch on to as little successes in our life and go, hmm, you know, look at this. You know, look what I did. And it's amazing how quickly we become arrogant and prideful uh, toward others. We do well in business and we, uh, we think to ourselves... What's wrong with that other guy who lives next door to me? You know, he's, he's struggling in his work and not doing so well. You know, I don't know what's wrong with that guy. Something's wrong with him. I, you know, obviously I have it figured out, but he doesn't. Or, or your kids you know, do well in school or they have a couple good years in school and someone else you know, their kids are struggling in different ways. And you think, you know, what's wrong with them? They, you know, they ought to come over here and ask me about parenting because obviously I know what I'm doing and obviously they don't. And it's just amazing how easily you can take anything and become uh, prideful with it. Success is so dangerous. It's not evil, but it's a major pitfall and trap. And, and we begin to think that we're the reason for the success. I remember uh, a guy called me uh, to the carpet on this. There's a guy named Mike Schutz, and he's a chaplain at Eastern Nazarene College. Used to be the chaplain there. Great guy. And I got hooked up with him, and he, he and I just do lunch, and we talk about ministry and life, and a really interesting fellow. Well, one time uh, we were talking about ministry and this whole issue of you know, would we be faithful to God no matter what in ministry? Is our relationship with God and our commitment to God solid or is it based upon the fluctuations of how ministry goes? And, and I said to Mike, I said, you know, Mike, I would love to be at a place in my life where even if the church I'm in, you know, everything went terribly wrong and there was all kinds of problems and there wasn't 
prosperity and success in terms of the world's way of viewing things. And, and the church shrank instead of grew, and there was a struggle there. I, I, I would hope that I would still remain faithful to God and do what He would call me to do, even though everything was going bad. And Mike said, oh, that's, that's an interesting thought, Jeremy. He said, but Jeremy, what about the other way? He said, what if South Shore Baptist Church goes through the roof? You know, what if it, it explodes in sort of worldly ways of measuring success? Uh, will you be faithful to God then? And I, I, I hadn't thought of it that way. Because you never think of it the other way. Because you think, oh, yeah, success is what we're all striving for. No, 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 no. God's glory is what we're all striving for. And success or struggles, either one, are simply arenas in which we are called to glorify God. It's about Him. It's not about promoting ourselves. And man, when he said that, it was just like, you know, we all have the proverbial Holy Spirit two by four. You know, I got it. Boom. I, I tend to get it a lot, I find. Um, and, and I get smacked with it. And I was like, wow, is God really what I'm all about? Or is it about failure or success of a, an organization? Um, God's glory is, is what's at stake, not my name or my reputation. And, and God's people are so easily lured into that, it must be me. I did it. In fact, God warns His people about it in the Old Testament. Um, put a bookmark again in Isaiah 38, uh, 9 and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's on page 180 in those pew Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 8, page 180 in the pew Bible. And God specifically warns the Israelites about this. The Israelites are about to go into the Promised Land. Moses has given them his final pep talk before they go into the promised land. And, it's, and Moses knows things are going to go well. And so he warns them in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look at verse 10. Moses says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, in other words, when you go into the promised land and you're finally settled and you eat and you're satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I'm giving you this day. Verse 12. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Jump down to verse 17. You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms His covenant which He swore to your forefathers as, he does, it, is, as it is today. So even before God sends him in the promised land, He says, I know you guys are going to do well and you're going to think it's you, but it's not you, it's me. So we have to be aware of pride. It's a dangerous thing. It's a good thing to be prosperous, obviously. I mean, it's, you don't want to be in misery. That's obviously normal to want to do well in life. And yet it's so dangerous. It's such a pitfall. So what is the antidote to pride? How do we keep from falling into this bear trap of success and falling off that, that narrow bridge of, of success where we start thinking it's all about me? How do you, how do you steer your way through the good times of life and make sure that you don't fall into this error. And I think the, the antidote is we need a bigger vision of God's glory and greatness. 
My mind needs to be filled up with God. You know, if you want to see yourself as small, go stand next to something big. And what's bigger than God? We need to be near God and we need to look at Him. We need God to capture our imaginations. We need God to fill up our hearts. We need Him to, to overwhelm our thoughts. We need to see how great and majestic God is, how wonderful and awesome God is. That was Moses' strategy. We just talked about Moses. Uh, Moses had every reason to be proud and to be arrogant. I mean, think about Moses. He did all those miracles in Egypt, you know, all those plagues and... He had that staff. He could throw it on the ground. It would turn into a snake. I mean, you get you got a staff that turns into a snake. I mean, you got yourself a TV ministry right there. I'm telling you what, <laughs> Moses Ministries. You can see on the commercial, bam, you know, and this whole thing. Um, I, I can just see it. Uh, you, you know, Moses get, get this evangelistic ministry on TV. But not only that, he parts the Red Sea. I mean, you know. If you could become, if you couldn't become arrogant over that, what are you going to become arrogant over? If you could part the Red Sea, if you could put that on your resume as a pastor, well, I did part the Red Sea. <laughs> you know, hired. I mean, that's just a great thing to have. And it's so easy to become arrogant about that. But what does the Bible say about Moses? I, I, it says he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. I've always, I love that verse. Moses? I think you can brag a little, Moses. You parted the Red Sea. No, no, no. He was the most humble man in the face of the earth. How did he do that? How did he stay in that posture of humility? And I think the answer is, Moses hung out with God. And Moses got to spend, was it 40 days? Over a month on Mount Sinai, living in the presence of God and seeing God's glory and greatness. And you know, you spend a month seeing God. You know, the Red Sea is nothing. You know, who, big deal, I've seen God. And then even when he came down the mountain, actually he spent two times with God because he came down and broke the tablets because the people were worshiping the golden calf, went back up, had to get replacement for the tablets. And then, uh, and then when he finally comes down, he's living among the Israelites again. You remember he had the tent of meeting and Moses would go into the tent of meeting and hang out with God. And I had, oh, this beautiful line in the Bible. Moses spoke to God as a man spoke with his friends face to face. And Moses would come out of the tent of meeting. Remember his face would be shining and then people were, ah, so he put a veil over his face so that people wouldn't be spooked by his presence. And I think because he saw God in God's greatness, because he dwelt in God's presence, man, the, the successes of this world are just so trifling. They're such trinkets compared to the majesty of God. I think the antidote to pride is, is seeing for God for who he is and letting your imagination, your heart, your desires, your mind, everything you have be filled up with a great vision of our great God. And so, you know, what do we stand in awe of? Do you stand in awe of God? Do I stand in awe of God? Do I stand in awe of big buildings? Do I stand in awe of big uh, piles of money? You know, all the lotteries up to 300 million. Oh, what would that be like to win 300 million dollars? You know, and, and the stars and you know, the dollar signs in my eyes. And I'm in awe of money. Or I'm in awe of a, a, a Bentley I see or a, or a Dodge you know, Viper driving down the street. I'm in awe of the car. Do, do I spend my time looking through magazines, letting my mind be filled up in awe of computers and architecture and motorcycles? Or do I open up the Bible and let my mind be in awe of God? You know, let, let myself drool over God, if you want to put it that way. Wow, what a God this is. What a God this is. Do I, do I pray, God, teach me more about your greatness? When I sit on the beach at Nantasca, do I look out and think, what an awesome God who created all these things? When I'm singing these songs we sing in worship, am I just kind of singing along? Or am I really trying to think about the words? What an awesome God that I'm 
I'm worshiping. Here's another one. Am I training my children to stand in awe of God? I know I'm training them to succeed. We all train our kids to succeed. You've got to go to the right school. If your kid gets a B, how could you get a B? Come on. They get a B plus. How could you get a B plus? You need to get higher. And they get an A minus. How could you get an A minus? And we're pushing our kids, pushing our kids, trying to make them do better in school, extracurricular activities, because we want our kids to succeed. And, you know, I mean, that's good. I mean, you don't want your kids to fail. You don't want your kids to have a hard life. You want them to do well in life. So that's not inherently wrong. But am I teaching my kids at the same time to stand in awe of God? Or am I just cranking out another generation of Hezekiahs who are going to succeed in life and then leave God because they never learned that it's all about Him and that everything comes from Him? When things go wrong in my life or things go good in my life and I talk about it with my children, am I talking about it in terms of God? Yeah, isn't that great? Look at this, look at this new house we bought, Johnny. Isn't God good to us? Look what God has done for us. Instead of, yeah, you know, look, look at that. That's right. Look at what your dad did. No, no, no. Look what God did. And so we've got to teach our children to be in awe of God. So how do you stand in awe of God? I mean, it, you know, it's kind of an interesting concept, but where does it start? Let me tell you, the first place it starts, if you want to stand in awe of God, start with the cross. Stand in awe of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let that be your entry point into understanding who God is and what God has done. Have you ever stood in awe of God because of the cross? The Bible says, God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to get our acts together. While we were still a rebellious, sinful humanity, God sent His only Son to die for us. I mean, have you ever been hurt by anybody? Have you ever been deeply betrayed by somebody? Do you have that person's face in your, in your mind? Now imagine sending your child to die in order for that person to be saved. It's ridiculous. Of course we would never do that. I was just the opposite. You mess with my kids, and you're messing with me, and you, know, you want to see my pastoral whatever come off. You know, mess with my family, mess with my children. I mean, we just become enraged when people uh, threaten our children. That's this natural instinct God's built into us. And yet God took His own Son and He died on the cross to save me while I was still a rebellious, sinful man. That is so awesome. Stand in awe of the love of God that would sacrifice His own Son for you in order to be saved. Do you stand in awe of God? And I don't just mean say, well, yeah, that's amazing. No, I mean, have you fallen on your knees before the cross and said, Jesus Christ, I'm not worthy of this, but Christ, I want You. Save me. Forgive me. I want to be a Christian. I want to walk in Your ways, Christ, because I can't believe what You have done on the cross. And let that be the beginning of a journey of living a life in awe of God. Because only God is great. Only God is worthy of our praise and our love. No pastor, no church, no amount of money, no car, no house. All that stuff is just nothing. Just dust. It's just vapor. Only God is great. So let us stand in awe of Him, even when things, and especially when things go well in our lives. Let's pray. God, we do stand in awe of You because only You are worthy. Everything in this world is just dust and vapor compared to Your greatness. And yet, Lord, despite the fact that we are as dust and despite the fact that we are rebellious, that we are uh, sinful, that we are, that we are Your enemies, 
We thank you that you gave up your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to be crucified so that we, the very people who who have turned against you, that we might be saved and rescued. Lord, your love is so amazing. Your love is so enormous. And we stand in awe of your love through the cross. And I pray, God, we wouldn't simply acknowledge it intellectually, but that we would receive Christ into our hearts now. We would love and worship Him and put our trust in Him. May Jesus fill up our minds with wonder. May Jesus captivate our imaginations, Lord. May the glory of Jesus Christ be what we're all about as a church. May that be what gets us fired up as Christians, is to see Jesus' name glorified and amplified. And Lord, as you bless us, help us never to get caught up in the success. Help us, Lord, to always keep throwing it back to you and to see everything in light of your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, praise team, would you come and lead us in a closing song celebrating this, this great love of God that we just...